0: That is one of my favorite movies. Um, Just got better. When I was in seminary, it took me five years to get my degree, three-year degree in five years. And uh, when you're 25, five years seems like a really long time. And I thought, I'm going to be 30 years old by the time before I graduate. And I wondered if it was worth it. It was such a grind. And a fellow student wisely said, you know, Mark, in five years, you're going to be 30 anyway. So, you might as well be more prepared and more educated than you are today. And in the same week, I want to say, in the same way, 31 weeks is a long time. And that's, you know, we're going clear to next May in this. And and I want to say to you what was said to me 31 weeks is going to go by no matter what you do, unless Jesus comes first, of course. So, at the end of the 30 weeks, you might as well have a better grasp of the Bible, a stronger foundation spiritually. Plus, if you're in a group or a class, you'll make some new friends and some acquaintances. So, let me encourage you to hang in there. These 31 weeks are going to go by anyway, and you might as well will make the most of it and experience some growth. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. All you have to do this week is read one more chapter. Just worry about this week and let next week take care of itself. How many of you read this past week, what, chapter five? Okay, we're... Eh, how many of you did not read this past week? Okay. Anyway, let's hang in there. Let's review. I want to quiz you a little bit here. In chapter one, God creates... Heaven and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve and places them in a perfect paradise called the garden of? That's God's vision for us. It's perfect utopia. God and humanity in perfect unity in a perfect world. And that's still the urging of utopia in each one of us. But they rebel against their creator. Sin enters the picture, so the perfection is destroyed. Evil gets so rampant and terrible that God says, let's start over and wipe everything out with a what? Flood. And they start with a righteous man by the name of? and we'll flood the world and clean everything up. But Noah is flawed too, and so there's still sin in the world. So God says, let's build a nation to work through, and he chooses an elderly couple by the name of Abraham and Sarah to build a nation. God works through this family with all of its dysfunction and struggles, but God's working through them. The faith passes on to Isaac, then Jacob, and then Joseph, who's the great-grandson of Abraham. And God uses Joseph to save the family from famine. He moves the family to what country? Egypt, okay, and stayed there for 430 years, most of the time as slaves. They were under terrible oppression until God hears their cry and raises up who to deliver them? Moses. They get out of jail free, they're released from Egypt and bondage. Today is the second get out of jail free card, reprogrammed. God's people have been released, given freedom, but now they need to be taught how to live with that freedom, and God gives them some guidelines and some laws to reprogram their thinking. And it's the same with us. He not only saves us, he reprograms us through his word and his spirit and through other believers and through teaching and through life experiences. And part of that reprogramming includes commandments and laws to live by. So the Hebrews have come out of slavery. They've had a slavery mindset. that has been ingrained in them for four centuries and God wants to give them a freedom mindset. It was hard to take the Israelites out of slavery. We saw that last week. But we'll find that it was even harder to take the slavery out of the Israelites And we'll see that next week. Back after the Berlin Wall came down in the late 80s, some people from communist countries were allowed to leave the country and some of them moved to the United States. And I saw an article about five years after that wall came down about how some Russian families had moved to the U.S., but now they were going to leave the United States. And the reason for that is they could not cope with the freedom that they were expected to exercise here. It had been too much for them to take control of their own lives after growing up in a culture that had made all the decisions for them. You know, where to live, how much schooling their children would get, what sort of work they would do or where they would do it. All those decisions were made for you by the government, and now the freedom was just too much to handle. And that's what the Israelites have just come out of, slavery. They didn't have to think. Just do what you're told to do. But now they're free. And what are they going to do with this freedom? It's kind of like when your kid goes off to college, your kid leaves home for the first time, They're free. Well, do they have some guidelines and some laws to live by, an inner compass in them? So God gives Israel some guidelines for living as a freed people. And the law is an important part of the story. It makes up a large part of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you were to read all those books, there's lots of laws and regulations. In fact, when people read those four books, that's usually when they give up on reading the Bible. It's just too much. But these laws are critical. To the life of Israel, to their story, and for our story too. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, so it's still applicable to us today. Now, I want you to see this chart up here behind me, how there's an interspersing between law and story. Uh, This is actually chapter 5, Exodus 19 to Exodus 40. This is what our chapter this week covers. And one of the distinctive characteristics of the, this law is that it's interspersed with narrative. Law, then story, law, then story, and then, and then the tabernacle and story. And this integration between law and narrative was unique in the ancient Near East. You don't see this very often. It's, so it's not just a set of laws laid down by God, you shall do this, but it's laws in the context of story. Deuteronomy six twenty. It says, in the future, when your son asks you what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord your God has commanded you, tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You see what happens there? When Junior asks, what's the meaning of these laws, first tell him the story. You won't understand the law if you don't get the story. Why? Because the story explains the relationship and what God has done for you. So the story keeps the law personal. The law from God is not an impersonal list of do's and don'ts. That easily falls into legalism. But in the story, we're confronted with the giver of the law who is living and personally interacting with us in every step of our journey. The story reveals a lively, pulsating relationship between God and his people, and the law has to be seen as personal. Same with us. Your relationship with God should be personal. If you see the Bible as a law book or a rule book, you don't get it. You need to see it as a story, what God has done for us and what God is doing for us. And our obedience to the law is simply our response to his grace. If you see the commandments as a burden and stifling, as a chore, then you have separated from the story of God's grace. And you really don't understand that the law is given to us in love. If you have a boss and your only relationship to him is obedience, it's all rules and orders, but he doesn't care about you, he doesn't ask about you, you probably don't have a very healthy boss-employee relationship heard about a company that had a company had a policy that no one could wear shorts at work, and they didn't have air conditioning in the workplace, and it was a hot, hot summer, It was getting up to over 100 degrees. Now the women could wear skirts, so the men, in conformity to the policy, also started wearing skirts, <laughs> giving new meaning to the phrase "dress code," I guess. They, they kept the law. If the laws are just to inhibit, it makes life harder. And if you see these laws as inhibiting, it'll make your life harder. These laws are intended to make life better and richer. If you have a parent, which you've all had a parent at one time or another, and your only relationship is obedience, it's all rules without relationship, that's not enough. You share a story with your parents. You may not always understand their rules. You may may get mad at them at times, but you have a history with them, and you know that they're doing it for your best. And if you separate law from the story, it becomes a cold legalism. There's an old formula I remember learning when our kids were small. Rules without relationship leads to, anyone know? Rebellion. If if it's all rules, no relationship, your kids will rebel. Now, they may rebel anyway, but if you don't have the relationship, it'll be bad. There's a man named John walked into a bank in his blue jeans to finalize a business transaction. And the teller told him that the officer that he needed to see wasn't in that day, and he would have to come back the next day. So John said that's fine, and he asked the teller to validate his parking ticket. The teller informed him that according to their bank policy, she could not validate his parking ticket because he had technically not completed a financial transaction. It was one of the rules. John asked for an exception since he had come to the bank intending to do business but wasn't able to do because the officer wasn't in. Teller didn't budge. She said, I'm sorry, that's our policy. Rules are rules. So John decided to make a business transaction. He closed his account. John's last name was Acres. He was the chairman of IBM, and the account that he closed had a balance of $1.5 million. This qualified as a financial transaction, and the teller was able to validate the parking ticket. She was right. Kept the rules. Lost the relationship. This was Jesus' exact issue with the Pharisees. They kept the law but lost the relationship, the story, the spirit of grace that is behind the law. Now, rules are important. These laws are not suggestions. They are commands. But if that's all you have in your relationship with God, just ruled, you don't have it. That's why you need the story of God's grace and what he's done for you. So let's start in chapter 5, page 59. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the story. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Relationship. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Notice the first thing God does. He says, look at the story. See what I did. Look at our history together, uh, the relationship. Then he says, now if you obey, you'll be my treasured possession and a holy nation. You'll be a special people. God wants to make a covenant with them. And covenant is huge in the story. I haven't talked about this so far, but I really need to. Back with Noah, God made a covenant. With Abraham, he made a covenant. And now with the nation of Israel, he again makes a covenant. And the law is a major part of the covenant. Now, many of you are in a covenant today. When you got married, you entered into a covenant. If you're planning to get married, you will enter a covenant. And a covenant is different from a contract in that a contract is to protect yourself. Um. You sign a contract with your landlord to protect you and to protect him. A prenuptial agreement is actually a contract to protect yourself. A covenant is not entered into to protect yourself. It's an agreement to do the best for the other person. God will do this and we will do that. You know, He delivers us and we live for him. There's a healthy give and take in a good covenant. A covenant is based on trust and relationship. A contract is based on distrust. Now, part of that covenant is the law. Page 69 says, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. We know that during this period in history, other nations also used tablets for establishing a covenant. A covenant was usually between a superior and a subordinate, a superior nation and a subordinate nation. Okay, now here God is the superior and Israel is the subordinate. And these covenants all had a similar pattern. And the first one is the superior states who he is. And on page 61 we have this, I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20, verse 2. And so it begins with who he is and then it tells what he's done for the subordinate. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Again, this is very common covenantal type of language. A mighty king introduces himself to the subjects and then what he's done for them or will do for them. I released you from slavery. And then the king would go on and stipulate the obligations that the vassal was to fulfill. So we have the regulations that Israel had to observe in order to be faithful to her covenant to Yahweh. Laws are part of life, aren't they? Rules are part of life. If you get married and enter into a covenant, there are some rules you will live by. When a guy says, I do, for instance... He is obligating himself to be faithful to her as long as they both shall live, to protect her, support and encourage her, be committed to her for better or for worse. We call those the vows. Those are the rules of the covenant, and it's based on trust and a relationship. After he gets married, the guy usually finds out there's other rules he didn't know about, like pick up your socks and do not disturb her before 9 a.m. or before she's had her coffee. And the toilet seat is to remain down at all times. And listening to her and watching SportsCenter at the same time is tantamount to an emotional affair. (laughs) That's how relationships work. They have rules. Now, whether they're stated or not, all relationships have rules. But if your relationship is only a bunch of rules, it's not a good relationship. And if it's all about rules, then you're going to become bitter and angry and resentful. And like in the marriage analogy, the husband will see her as a tyrant and demanding. But I really don't mind picking up my socks as long as the story is healthy, the relationship's good. If the story's bad, the rules become a burden. If we see these rules from God as only rules, we're going to want to rebel. I'm not going to do those. God's a tyrant. God's asking too much. He's demanding. Atheist Christopher Hitchens once wrote this, said, if the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would mean living eternally under a divine totalitarian despot. It would be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse because at least you can die and get out of North Korea. Wow. Tell us what you really think. But this is an atheist, no story, no relationship with God, and if you see these commandments as just commandments without the relationship, this is what you have. But because of the story, these are not commandments of a despot who lays down his law, but these are the commands of Yahweh, the liberator, who loves us and who wants his people to stay free and to live in a covenant relationship with him. Now, we all know that freedom requires some limits, and the law is necessary for freedom. They've been released, they're out of jail free, and now in order to stay free, they need reprogramming. They need a new way of thinking and some new habits. and Otherwise, they'll end up in the same slavery. And one day uh, in this story, they do end up back in slavery because they refused to follow God's laws and went back to slavery thinking. For a fish to, to thrive, he's limited to water. It's his proper element. And similarly, people are free to thrive like fish in water or maybe a bird in the air only when we follow God's ways in God's world. That's the environment. His law is the proper environment for freedom. James 1 actually calls it the law of liberty. So the law is not about strictness, but its concern is to keep the one who's been liberated from falling back into old patterns. Freedom today to most people means free to do whatever I want to do. And the only problem with that is, well, there's more than one problem, but the big problem is that that understanding of freedom actually leads to slavery, to our own passions, and to anarchy. Freedom is not the absence of restraint. That results in chaos and abuse. We are free in Jesus Christ not to do whatever we want, but we are free to become what God intended us to become. You know, like the army says, be all you can be. Army has a lot of rules and regulations. You don't be all you can be by doing whatever you want. A fish is limited to water, so it can be what a fish was intended to be. And the law is our element in which we can thrive. Deuteronomy 6 says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. So the law has the best interest of his people at heart. Parents, how many of you have rules for your kids? Okay, if you don't, I won't say anything. Parents, how many of you kids think you're too strict? Yeah, okay, good. Glad to hear that. Um, But you do to protect them, don't you? Don't run down the hall with a toothbrush in your mouth. Don't run in the street. Don't run with the scissors in your hand. Be home by 10. Don't hit your sister. You restrict them to protect them and also so that they can be free to mature and blossom into what they were intended to be. Without some laws... They will not be free. They're not free to blossom. Look at these Ten Commandments. And uh, we got these if God texted the Ten Commandments. Kind of. Anyway, let's do these. What's that one? No one before me, seriously. Okay. Next one? Don't worship pictures, idols. Next one? No OMGs. <laughs> yeah, okay. Go on. No work on weekend, Saturday for now, Sunday later. Cool. Kids, what's that say? Your mom and dad are cool, aren't they? Okay. (laughs) Don't kill people. Sex only with your mate. Don't steal. Uh, Don't lie to your best friend. Is that what it is? I don't know texting. (laughs) Don't ogle your best friend's mate or ox or donkey. Mind your own business. Okay, very good. All right. Now, a lot of the commands are nots, thou shalt nots, but we need to understand those nots infer a positive. When you have nots for your kids, you won't do this, won't do that, there's always a positive that's inferred in there. Uh, Like, don't run into the street because we value your life. Okay, there's a positive there. You shall not murder means you value life. You shall not steal, meaning you shall respect other people's property. So there's a positive built into these. Now let me ask you, these 10, what would our society be like if everyone did these 10 commandments? I mean, let's look at the fourth one. If everyone took a Sabbath, everyone took a day off, no work, no stores open, no ball games, everyone relaxed and worshiped one day a week, what would that be like? We'd probably all go crazy at first. I know, we wouldn't know what to do. But I would suggest it would be a better world. Maybe a little less stress. How about fewer ulcers? Maybe even less crime and selfishness and crazy. Instead of this go, 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 all the time, we just stopped. Took a day. How about if there's no killing, no murder? Gun control laws would not be an issue, would it? What if everyone honored their father and mother? No adultery, no sexual sin. No stealing, no envy, no lying. What would that be like? It would be a lot like the Garden of Eden. It would be a better world. The law is our friend. God's law points us back to Eden and our relationship with him. Now, Here's another thing about the law. It will help Israel be holy and distinct. Helps us too. He says, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, to be holy simply means to be different, to be set apart. This concept is found over and over in the Bible. It indicates that Israel cannot behave like the people of Egypt or the people of Canaan. Yahweh has separated Israel from the nations. They came out of Egypt, and they need to be different from Egypt. In the New Testament, Paul says the same thing about us. We have been chosen in order we might live holy and blameless lives before God. Now, my parents, I thought, were pretty legalistic. Most of you kids think your parents are pretty legalistic. Most are. But that's because my parents wanted me to be different. Every kid has said it sometime or another, but Johnny's doing it. And mom says, so what? You're not Johnny. The Webbers are doing it. We're not the Webbers. And God says to Israel, you're not an Egyptian. Don't do what they do. You be different. You be holy. Everyone else is lying. You be truthful. Everyone else is greedy. You be generous. Egypt was oppressive, you be merciful. You are different. Now, these laws are 3,000 years old. And a lot of people suggested they're out of date. Really? You think murder and adultery and stealing and idolatry are not big problems today? They're probably more relevant today. Old is not bad. I was meeting with Alex and Tracy talking about uh, some of our worship services. and Now, Alex and Tracy are really hip and cool and relevant and all that, and I had my phone. I should have brought it with me. And they asked, "Hey, Mark, did you get the new iOS 7 for your phone?" I thought they were talking Greek. That's what they're talking about? And uh, I had my phone with me. And uh, so uh, they asked if I even had a. Well, I don't have a smartphone, obviously. And Alex looked at my phone and said, "Does it even have a keyboard?" I said, Yes, it has a keyboard. So I showed him that. And... <laughs> Smart Alex. Anyway. <laughs> So I was over uh, visiting with Josh a couple of weeks ago after this, and I was telling him about it, how these whippersnappers were making fun of me, and Josh loves his dad, and he said, you know, Dad, tell them that Andrew Luck, who, by the way, Alex idolizes, anyway, Andrew Luck, the quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, doesn't have a smartphone. He said, Josh said, Dad, he has an old, plain phone. He has a phone that is older than yours and does less. So there, I'm on the same level as Andrew Luck. I'm cool and hip and relevant, too, so... Now, I want to share one other commandment about this, Leviticus 19.32, since we're talking about commandments, rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God, I am the Lord. Next staff meeting, I walk in, I expect them to stand up. (laughs) Just kidding. But old is not bad. How does Israel respond? The covenant is made, the commandments are given, page 62 and page 63 in the story, They say, we will obey everything the Lord has commanded. We will do. They build an altar. They set up 12 stones. They're all in. We don't mind these rules. They're good. We're good with them. But then the two pages after that, what do they do? Break the commandments. The first two, actually, they build a calf and worship idols and other gods. The biggest reprogramming they need is no other gods. The first two commandments. I would suggest that's the biggest reprogramming we need. Jesus said the First, most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Does anyone know what the most common sin in the Bible is? Number one sin in the Bible is idolatry. I would contend that's still the number one sin. In the Old Testament, we will read a lot about Baal as we go through the story. He was probably the most tempting of the gods because he was the god of rain and fertility, which their economy depended upon. There was also many gods and goddesses of sexuality. It's no different than today. Money and sex. If it's sold then, it sells Today. Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, these gods have disappeared, and Zeus is no longer worshipped, but idolatry still remains. Habakkuk 1 says a man's strength can be his god. Job 31 says you can say to gold, you are my confidence. Covetousness is explicitly called idolatry in Colossians 3.1, and we can even make our stomach a god. Achievement can be a God. Achievement's good, success is good, but it can become a God. The family can become an idol. The biggest idol today is probably self. You know, I'm going to be God. I, I read somewhere that something like 80% of Americans say that they determine by themselves what is right or wrong. Well, that, in other words, I am God. For some, it might be fitness or exercise. We eat carrots and celery and kashi and go to the gym four hours a day, and, and uh, how I look and how I feel becomes more important, really, than God. Fitness is great. But don't make it first. Don't make it your priority. Family can be an idol. Idolatry is putting anything or any person into that place in our lives that belongs to God alone. Idolatry is at the root of all other sin. As soon as we get things misplaced in our life, as soon as our priorities get wrong, sin abounds. God has to be first. That's why it's the first commandment. God has to be more important than anything or anyone, and that includes even our family as hard as that is God doesn't demand this because he's mean or selfish or egotistical he does because he loves us and he he wants to restore what was in Eden Adam and Eve make me first and it'll be fine and when they didn't their lives fell apart I found that most families make God first have good families make family first you might have a decent family but it's not what it could be please make God first I I, want to say to some people "Why, why do you continue to do it your own way Why do you try to thrive outside of God's will? It's like a fish trying to live on the land. It won't work. You might be able to flop around for a while, but it won't last. Now, this doesn't mean we have to be perfect. I mean, who of us can say that we we serve God blamelessly or perfectly? God is not asking for perfection, but He's asking for priority. If you want to be free, if you want to have life as God intended, if you want to be all you can be, You need reprogramming. All of us do. And that's why we're going through this story, understanding more about God and his ways and who he is and his laws and his will to reprogram our thinking and adjust our thinking to his. The first law is basic to all the others. No other gods. Love the Lord your God and everything else flows from that and hinges from that. Now, these are not even called commandments, by the way. They're called ten words or ten statements. They're not intended to stifle, but they're intended to be a response to God. You know, if I've been saved, I'm going to want to put God first. If I've been saved, I won't want to reduce God to an image. If I've been saved, I won't steal, and I won't commit adultery, and I won't lie, and I, and I will honor my parents. God says, I saved you, and now I'm rewiring you to live a different way, a better way. Be holy. Be different. Make God first. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that we see your law as a gift and as an act of grace and goodness. I pray that we see your law as a way to life and freedom, a way to be in what you intended us to be. I pray that we understand that when we break the law, we are actually breaking ourselves. We all need reprogramming. We've all been trained and taught in the ways some ways that are misguided and just wrong. So so change our hearts, oh God. Reorient our minds in a way that will make you our priority. In Jesus we pray this. Amen.